All right, Exodus uh, 5.22 through 6.13, Moses' complaint and God's plan. Uh, let's uh, read through the text uh, first, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. So, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I am about to do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand I will send them, uh, I will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the, uh, his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land with which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, uh, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will, make, uh, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from, your, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring them, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. I promise we are not reading the same story over and over again. Even though it might seem like we just repeated the, everything that I read last week, I swear I did not read that passage last week. Uh, God is reestablishing uh, his servant, uh, Moses, in his duties. This is part of a larger section uh, where we see uh, Moses is first his despondency and then the Lord's purpose, and then we see Moses and Aaron being commissioned in their humanity. Um, uh, in other words, Moses is not the superhero of the story. Uh, Moses and Aaron are commissioned in their humanity, uh, six, uh, chapters 6, 13 through 27. And then finally, uh, Moses and Aaron are commanded to speak the word of the Lord in six twenty-eight through 7. Now, Sparky will handle that last part next week. Uh, we're really looking uh, primarily at the first one, but also at the second one this week. Uh, so, uh, Moses, uh, it's not gone well, right? Remember, we, talk, we started talking about this, uh, Exodus 22 and 23, last week, where 
Moses has gone into Pharaoh and uh, has not used the words the word the word of the Lord. He used his own words uh, in in speaking to Pharaoh and uh, and Moses's words. Um, the Lord used to harden Pharaoh's heart and, and to make things worse for the people. And the the foremen uh, of the people have also gone into Pharaoh, and that didn't help. And now the foremen of the people have accused Moses and Aaron of making things worse. Um, And so Moses here now turns uh, to the Lord uh, with his complaint. Now, this is a sign of improvement in Moses, right? Because you remember the first time things didn't go well for Moses, he fled into the wilderness, and so this is, this, is, this is growth, right? He's moving in the right direction. Now, instead of fleeing into the wilderness when things don't go well, uh, he, he turns to the Lord or ret- returns to the Lord. It could be translated either way. Moses turns to Yahweh. Uh, but he turns to him in a very human sort of way. Uh, he turns to him and says, uh, Why? Why, 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 why? This is not what I wanted. You know, this is not what I thought was going to happen. This is not what I wanted. Why are you doing this? Uh, and, you know, that is, uh, is so typical of our reaction uh, when things don't go the way we think they ought to go, especially in terms of when we have promises from the Lord, right? You have a promise that the Lord will send his spirit to you and sanctify you, and then you go and do that same stupid sin again, and you go, why do I keep doing this? Uh, and then uh, not only does uh, 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 Moses ask the why question, look what he does with his why question. You, 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 or you, you, you. This, is this reminiscent of, of Genesis in the garden? That woman you gave me, she took it and gave it to me to eat. You, this is your fault, God. This isn't my fault. This is you. This is on you. Uh, and it is interesting. So when the, when the foreman, the Israelite foreman, came out of, of uh, uh, being with Pharaoh... They used the word you. They used it in a plural. And they meant Moses and Aaron. Moses, you and Aaron, y'all have caused more problems. You know, this is your fault, Moses and Aaron. And often God is referred to in the Old Testament in the plural. Um, uh, Elohim is actually the word for gods. It's the plural. And God often is referred to as Elohim. The one true and living God is Elohim, God's. Um, uh, let us make man in our image. There's, there's often this plural use of, uh, of God. But here Moses uses the singular. You, singular, you alone, you're the problem. Um, and so it's, it's very accusatory uh, in, the, in the way uh, that, it, that it is written. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you can, you know, I can, you can relate to, uh, you can relate to Moses and, and his reaction um, uh, because, you know, you think about the, in your own life when things don't go right, uh, when, when something very significant has gone wrong uh, and, and you... Um, and, and, and maybe a, a well-meaning Christian says, well, you, you know, trust the Lord, right? You can trust the Lord. 
And the thing that comes to your mind is, well, where was the Lord when this thing went wrong? Right? If God allowed the thing to go wrong, then how is it that I can trust him to make it right now? You know, if, if I can trust God to make it right now or in the future, why couldn't I have trusted him to not have it go wrong in the first place? Right? And, um, and, and so uh, we see this in Moses. We see it in David. Um, we see it uh, really throughout the Bible. The people of God coming to God and saying, what are you doing? Why have you done this to me? And, uh, and uh, because if we, can't, if we can't come to God... With, with our complaint, then we really can't trust him for the future, right? You have to be able to come and say, why are you doing this? Otherwise, it really means that God isn't in control and can't fix it and isn't on our side. It's just the happenstance of the world, and I'm just stuck in, in this terrible place. But now the interesting thing is, is that much like the answer given to Job, uh, Moses doesn't get an answer to his why. He, what he gets is a reiteration of the promises. God reiterates what he's going to do. And, and it starts right here. You know, as soon as, soon as uh, Moses is done with the you, 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 God responds with now. You know, Dennis loves his but God, you know, da-da-da-da-da, but God. This is, this is kind of the exact same sort of thing. You know, you-you-you-you-you, now look what I'm going to do. God steps in and says, now, now you shall see. You know, I know you had to go through this, Moses, but now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. He doesn't explain why Moses had to fail the first time he went into Pharaoh. He just says, now you're going to see. Now, now it's going to unfold. Um, sorry. And then Yahweh takes the you and turns it into the I, right? So God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared. I did not make myself known. I established. I have heard. I am Yahweh. I will bring. I will deliver. I will redeem. So God says, it, basically, he says, Moses, it's not about you. It's about what I am uh, about to do. Uh, I'm going to do something about it, and you just need to stand back and watch. Uh, he will use Moses in the upcoming narrative. He's going to use Moses as his instrument but it's really God who's going to do it. So when Moses went in with his own words, uh, uh, he did not deliver the people. But now God says, now I, I will do this. Uh, it, it's all about uh, Yahweh. And Moses needed to see that God had begun his work. Uh, and that, the, as we said last week, wasn't it fascinating in what we said last week where... Um, God gave Moses a specific instruction, and then Moses goes in and does it a different way, and it results in ending exactly the way God said it would end. God used even Moses' inappropriate approach to bring about what he wanted. 
Uh, and we said that can be very comforting to us that our sin doesn't knock God's plan out of kilter. Like, oops, I sinned, and now, you know, now it's all ruined, right? Uh, uh, our, our sin even fits into God's plan uh, for our life. Um, and so, um, anyway, so uh, God presents himself now here. Uh, in uh, three unique ways. First, he says in this all this I section. First, he says, I am the God of the past. Uh, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Uh, but by my name, the Lord, I did not uh, make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they were sojourners. So I am the God of the past. And now we're going to come back to this uh, odd little thing here in the middle about I revealed myself as God Almighty, but did not reveal myself to them by my name. And we'll get to that in just a second. But first we need to see that not only is he the God of the past, he's the God of the present. So... um, by my name, by the, by the name of the Lord, I did not make myself known to them, meaning like I have to you now. And moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So I am the God of the past, I am the God of the present, but a God in more fuller revelation in the present than in the past. And then I am the God of the promised future. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Um, and the, the future promised is, is really twofold. It would be easy enough to, to miss this, because so often in the Scriptures, uh, things are repeated for emphasis, but sometimes the repetition brings out a, a different flavor. And so, notice he's, the promise is that he will bring them from under the burdens of the Egyptians and he will deliver them from slavery. So, uh, he could have just made, you know, he could have made a gilded cage for them. In other words, he could have left them in Egypt, but it could have been a wonderful time in Egypt that being, uh, you know, uh, not all slaves are created equal. Some have great privileges. You know, uh, Joseph... Um, by the end of his career, his slavery career in in Egypt, had great privileges. He had a, he was still a slave, but he had great he had a gilded cage, as it were. Whereas the the um, the current situation of the Israelites is that they are under this extreme burden. They were already groaning under the burden, and then it got worse after Moses showed up. And this whole having to go out and find their own straw, and yet make the same amount of bricks, and get beaten if they don't you know, complete their task. So the burden has gotten worse, and God's going to deliver them from the burden, but he's not going to just deliver them from the burden and give them kind of the position of Joseph. He's also going to deliver them out of slavery altogether. So there's a, a, you know, a nuance here. He's going to deliver them from the burden, and he's going to deliver them from slavery. It's a double promise. Now, kind of stepping back and looking at uh, that strange little section where he said, I... I, rec- I, I revealed myself to them in the past as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And 
there's been tons of ink spilled on this. Uh, the first thing is God Almighty, uh, which is in a translation of El Shaddai. So if you're, if you're a Christian in the room of a certain age, you remember, Susu's already singing it in her head, um, you remember Amy Grant's song El Shaddai. And so we all think, well, we, we know exactly what El Shaddai means, but it is quite debated amongst the uh, uh, commentators. And the, the kind of the, the best we can come up with is that it means uh, the, the all-sufficient one, all-sufficient for himself and for us, that he has everything that is needed within himself, uh, that he can supply all of your needs and he lacks nothing uh, in himself. He is the all-sufficient one. Uh, and so he uh, revealed himself in the past as the all-sufficient one. And then, uh, uh, then the liberals have a heyday with this section because it says, you know, that I, I, I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the all-sufficient one, but I did not reveal myself by my name. And so, but, and yet, the, the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, is used all throughout the patriarchal period narrative. And so the liberals say, well, clearly what we have here is multiple uh, authors writing multiple mythic stories that some editor came along later and just put together. Obviously, they didn't put it together very well because the modern liberal can pick it apart and find all the various authors in the original. So it was a clearly just a cut-and-paste job that the, that the later editor uh, did. And I think what we're the, the traditional way of understanding this is not that Yahweh, as the name of the Lord, was new at the burning bush, but that now it was going to be revealed in a way that the people would be able to actually fully, if not fully, in a much better way, comprehend it. So... You, you think about, just uh, to use, uh, uh, kind of use an example to lead up to what I'm talking about. You, you, uh, you, you, uh, you know, a, a young man and a young woman meet each other. And they get to know each other, and they think that they know each other well enough. Actually, they think they know each other completely. And so they, uh, they get engaged. And then they get married, and then in the first year of marriage, they found out that there's a lot of things they didn't know about each other. Uh, and some of that creates tension. And then at the end of the first year of marriage, after they've kind of worked through some of that stuff, now they think they really know each other. But then some tragedy comes along. The death of a child or the chronic prolonged illness of a child or the the death of a beloved sibling or the economic collapse of the family something happens and uh, it does not those sorts of events do not leave the marriage unchanged either the it the, it breaks the marriage or the marriage becomes stronger and the husband and wife know each other and trust each other and love each other in a way that they never did prior to that major event in their life. And I think that's an example or, or a helpful way of thinking about what God is saying here. You know, I made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, 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 
And uh, they never really saw my sufficiency, my deliverance, my promise. But now these people, these people that I'm about to bring out of Egypt will know me in a way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never did. And I think the New Testament talks about us in the same way in that once Christ comes and reveals the Father more fully in Christ, we know God in a way that even the Israelites did not. We understand him in a, in a, in a new and special uh, way. Uh, so he is the all-sufficient one, but you don't really know how sufficient he is until you have been a slave in Egypt for 400 years and he delivers you from the greatest power, political power in all the world. You don't really know how sufficient he is until he sends Christ uh, to live the life that you were supposed to live and die on the cross the death that you were supposed to die. Now you understand him as truly the all-sufficient one, as Yahweh, as the one who is the I am. Uh, so I think that's, that's how we're supposed to understand this. I did not reveal myself to them. It's that they didn't really know me. As much as Abraham, as close as I was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't know me in a way that this group will know me. And they didn't know God in the way, in the rich way that we know God, looking back on his salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, and then, also, we shouldn't miss the word redemption here. I will deliver you from slavery uh, I'll deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. The word uh, redemption or redeemer is used really in two primary ways. There's more. It's actually used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. There are two primary ways it's used. And uh, one is to redeem a vow, a vow promised to God that can't really uh, be... uh, can't really be paid, or uh, uh, I guess that's that's the way to put it. So um, God said that all of the firstborn of Israel were to be His; they were all to be uh, given to Him in service. But instead of every firstborn being given into his service, there was a redemption price. You were to go and to sacrifice, and I don't even remember what it is now, but there were certain animals you're supposed to take uh, to, the, to the synagogue, or not the synagogue, to the temple or to the tent of meeting and offer sacrifice to redeem the firstborn. And then the firstborn would continue on in your household uh, as they always have. Uh, or... Uh, another a- a example is that you could vow your house, but then you paid the kind of the fair market value of the house and redeemed the house, uh, as it were. Um, and then the other use of the uh, redeemer, uh, common, uh, is the kinsman redeemer, the next of kin redeemer. Um, if you're the kinsman redeemer, then you have the right and privilege uh, to avenge the murder of your next of kin. You are the kinsman redeemer. Uh, we also think of the, the book of, of Ruth, uh, where uh, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And there's all kinds of aspects that are involved there. Remember, he gets her because there's some debt. He not only is the kinsman redeemer in terms of being the next in line to receive her as a wife, but there's also this debt that's got to be paid and, and all this uh, 
uh, stuff. And, uh, and so, uh, and there was one kinsman redeemer that was closer, but he already had a wife. He really didn't want to take on a second wife. Um, and that all goes, again, back to the, the kinsman redeemer uh, that, the, that the, uh, the Pharisees try to use against Jesus, you know, the, the one where seven brothers die and each one gets the, the, the wife passed down and they want to know whose wife. That's all that idea of the kinsman redeemer. And I think both aspects of that are in play here. Uh, God is saying that he will pay whatever he has to pay in order to redeem his people. And he's creating this next of kin relationship. He, is, he's, he has this next of kin relationship because of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's fully establishing it here. He's paying the price uh, as, the, uh, as the kinsman. Uh, redeemer. Uh, so I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So he's, he's kind of, in essence, again, reestablishing this kinsman redeemer relationship. You will know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. So, verses 2 through 8, this is God's uh, statement. It's his response to Moses' complaint. And again, he never really addresses the complaint. He reiterates what he is about to do for the people uh, and to Pharaoh. And verse verse 2 is, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. And verse verse 8 ends with, I am Yahweh. And what's in between all that is uh, this great promise that the uh, verse 4, I'm going to say, yeah, verse 4, God feel, feel, feels our woes. Verse 5, he, uh, he sets us free. Verse 6, brings us close to himself. Verse 7, he will eventually lead us home. Verse 8, faithfulness, uh, uh, and, and they're kind of, I'm sorry, to sum it all up, Motier said, faithfulness, empathy, deliverance, intimacy, and inheritance, they are all embraced in this inclusio, I am Yahweh. So that's, that's God's response to Moses' complaint. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you this faithfulness, empathy, deliverance, intimacy, and inheritance. And so... So now recommissioned, reenthused, Moses goes and speaks just as God told him to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Uh, even though God has revealed himself in the past uh, as El Shaddai, they still can't believe that he is El Shaddai, that he will supply what they need. Their uh, experience of being enslaved for centuries and now having their slavery made worse when they got some little glimmer of hope, their spirits are broken and they will not believe Moses. Uh, So Yahweh says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, uh, uh, the king of Egypt, to let the people go out of this land. 
But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel not, will not listen to me. Then how, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So he's regressing again. I mean, this is the very excuse he used, remember, at the burning bush. And so he's, he's, he's feeling uh, downtrodden over the, um, the whole uh, experience in, um, you know, I, you, 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 I complained. You told me it was going to be okay. I go to the people. They're still rejecting me. Obviously, Pharaoh will continue uh, to... Uh, reject me, and God, if you know, if you're not, in case you're not paying any attention, remember, I said all along that this wouldn't work. I am the one with uncircumcised lips. Um, but Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and uh, and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people uh, out the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron are given this commission, even in, even in spite of or in light of their sense of complete failure in previous processes. And, and so um, uh, you know, I, I guess I just going back to this is, this is uh, this is us, right? This is how life feels so often. We have this great promise of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We have this great promise of what he's doing, the God of the past. We have this great promise of what God is doing in the present and this future promise of what he will do uh, going forward in our uh, heavenly, you know, bringing us across the Jordan and into his heavenly kingdom and our glorification uh, in the last day, and yet the reality of the boots on the ground doesn't seem to match with the promises. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we go, we go to the Lord and we say, why? We say, you. And God responds with, no, I am still the God of the past. I still am the God of the present. I still am the God of the future. Uh, and uh, you... Uh, you have to trust me as the El Shaddai, as the all-sufficient one, as the Yahweh, as the one who is. Um, and you need to see that I have been the God of the past, and I am the God of the future and the present, and will be the God of the future uh, as you look not at your circumstances, but what all I have done and what all I have said that I will do. Um, so any, any questions? Uncircumcised lips. What is that? Sparky. I, I purposefully did not hear the question. <laughs> no, no. Uh, um, why did Moses use the language of uncircumcised lips? Um, that's a very good question. I, that, that phrase appears a few times in Scripture. <clears throat> Uncircumcised part. And it's like, I, I think it's a way of saying that I am living. Uh, uh, I, I'm not the person you really need. I'm not all that you really need at this point. You need somebody else better than me. And so I think he's reinforcing the idea of what he's been saying all along. Why did you send me? 
That's where how this all started. Now, what? Look, here we are. And I told you this. So, why? Why did you do that? I, I have uncircumcised lips, obviously, because the lips didn't work. I wouldn't talk to him, and he didn't listen, and so the whole thing is crumpled in. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and another example of that would be Isaiah, right? So Isaiah receives his commission in chapter 6 uh, to go and to speak, and his response is, unclean lips. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the one to go and to speak. I have unclean lips. Uh, and, and my wife, who does all the studying and preparation for me, <laughs> just pointed out the fact that Matthew 4.10, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, because it's not about Moses, right? This is not a Hercules narrative. You know, this is not a, 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 this is not a Marvel movie, right? Uh, uh, this is uh, the, the the hero of the story is not the hero of the story. You know, I, I first of all I want to say that not only are you um, the better looking actor, but I also want to say that this was really good what you shared with us today. And it really gives the gist of it. You know, I was going over my notes, and then you get all the high points here. But right here at the end, I think the application that you've heard Rick give us is so significant. Well, actually, excuse me, not Rick, because he's of uncircumcised lips. It's what the Lord had said that he would do for the people there in verses 6 through 8. I will deliver them from their bondage. I will redeem them without stress. I will take you. I will give them a glorious inheritance. And so this, as we've been contending here, Exodus is the story of God showing the way out of ourselves and out of our bondage. And so when you come to the New Testament, let me just, if you want to turn there, turn to Luke 1 and look at verses 68 and 69, 72 and 75, and keeping in mind what he just said, that God said about what he promised to do, because this is a template. Remember, Exodus is a template for us. Exodus is an example for us of what God will do for us. And so, uh, here's what we read in Luke 1, verse 68. Uh, here, here, with the coming of Jesus, the promise of the coming of Jesus, just like promised to Moses, deliverance, Look at the words, how similar they are. Not exact quotes, but, but there's the similarity is striking. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up the horn of salvation, horn of salvation for us. See, he, he's, he's using the same words of Exodus to show what God is about to do again in fullness. And then in verses 72 to 75, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to his, our father Abraham to grant us that we be delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so this is what God did in Christ. 
Here's the foreshadowing that God remembered his covenant when he sent his son in flesh. And God remembered his covenant when Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And God remembered, by the way, that was the outstretching of his mighty arms in symbolically. And, <laughs> yes. and God remembered his covenant when Christ rose from the dead. Uh, Hebrews 13, 20 reminds us, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of his sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So all these things, the covenant is being fulfilled. It's not and it's not just an old covenant that is gone out. It's an old covenant continued as a new covenant through Christ. Hmm. Very good. Yeah. Were the Israelites protected from I know that they're protected from the first killing of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. So were they protected from all the other plagues? I think, you know, it, it doesn't say, I don't believe, Sparky, I don't believe it says, but, okay, so the, we're kind of, we're jumping ahead a little bit. We know that the Israelites were protected from um, the death of the firstborn with the, because of the blood of the lamb and the Passover. But were they protected from the other plagues? Like, did they experience frogs and gnats and so forth? And I don't think it's, as I don't recall it. Explicitly say that, this explicitly say that in those particular passages. But if you come next week, we're going to begin to talk about those things in the plagues. And I would encourage you to read throughout from 7 through 10 for next week. Mm-hmm. So my point of asking the question is uh-huh. Things don't get much better for the Israelites. I mean, they go through the plagues, then they're, they're released from the bondage of their slave owners, but they end up wandering in the desert, you know, having to sort of, I mean, God keeps them alive, keeps them food, keeps them food, but they don't even have ever get to the promised land. So, I mean, and you wonder, I mean, I don't, I don't wonder why they grumble, you know, in the desert, but um, things don't get that much better for them. Yeah, but now part of that is now the the wandering in the desert is their is their own fault. Um, uh, I I love this. This just jumped out at me uh, this week. It's Deuteronomy. The first three verses of Deuteronomy. I love this. All right. So these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in uh, the Arabah, opposite of Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizbah. Now, it's 11 days' journey from Horab to the, uh, by the Mount of Seir to Kadesh uh, Barna. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel all that the uh, Lord had given him, commanding them. Okay, so now Deuteronomy is written. This is the last, you know, it, not just literally uh, in, the, in the order of the books, the last, but this really is the last thing Moses wrote. This is his farewell sermon, right? So he's, he's preaching this sermon, you know, right there on the Jordan River at, at the end of the 40 years of wandering before he goes up on the mountain to die, and, and Joshua leads them across the Jordan. And it starts with, you know, these are the words Moses spoke, blah, 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 and you start reading all those name, city names that you don't know where they are, and your eyes start to gloss over. That's verse 1. And then verse 3 is, uh, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people uh, all that the, command, the Lord had said. So verse 1 is Moses spoke to the people. 
Verse 3 is, Moses spoke to the people. Verse 2 is, it's an 11-day journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barna. And you go like, how in the world does verse 2 fit between verses 1 and 3, right? Verse 1, Moses spoke to the people. Verse 3, Moses spoke to the people. Verse 2, it's an 11-day journey. They seem to have nothing in common. But it's an 11-day journey from Horeb, the Mount of Horeb, where they received the Ten Commandments, to the place where they're supposed to cross the Jordan River. Not 40 years, 11 months, and first day, right? And so they were supposed to cross the river on day 12. (laughs) You know, think think about that for a second. It's an 11-day journey, and here we are now, 40 years later. And, and that, I mean, that's the, that's the point we're supposed to walk away with. This was supposed to get better for them. And they got there, you know, in their, le- they, they, they completed their 11-day journey. They got there. They sent Joshua and Caleb into the land. And Joshua and Caleb said, hey, this is great. We're going to take the land. And the other spies said, no, there's, there's Rephaim out there, <laughs> you know, uh, which is interesting because uh, the Nephilim and the Rephaim are like, pre-flood, right? And so they're, they're saying, oh, this is like pre-flood. This is bad. This is bad. <laughs> and, um, and, um, uh, and so that's when they get to wander for 40 years. So they, they, they brought that on themselves. It, it's interesting when you read the accounts of the Passover, uh, uh, which is delivered prior to, the, the, the account of how the Israelites are supposed to do the Passover is delivered before Joshua and Caleb go in and spy out the land. And when you read it, you realize they were actually never supposed to celebrate the Passover in the wilderness. It was designed for what they would do when they were in the land because they were going to be in the land before the anniversary came, well before the anniversary of the Passover came. Um, they decided to go a different route. Yeah. So, uh, I guess the follow up to Paul's kind of question in general, but is there, I'm just trying to remember, is there any sort of uh, joy that's expressed by God's people in these books? Like, it's not. They're just, like, right here, I heard it groaning. Right? Well, groaning makes sense if they're slaves, but even when they're, even when he delivers them, they're like, this is it. Leeks and cucumbers, man. They got leeks and cucumbers. Oh, yeah, so, so what I'm asking is, like, there's for 40 years, or you don't really know, I think maybe it's some expression of gratitude, but this entire time when Moses is trying to display God's word, people are like, whatever, man, you know. He's not really grateful for what God is doing, even though God is showing his name, you know. So I don't know that, I'm going to say God punished him for that, God softened but I, I, but I'm getting at is that, like, you never see you never see them being that really the point is you never see them really being having any sort of sort of gratitude and it's really almost like forced forced uh, worship like uh, Moses is being told Aaron's being told about how to worship God so then they have to teach them but they're not really like not really they don't sort of want to do that you know yeah I think Fred's got something but I I got two things and then I'll give it Fred to stay on your question. Um, First, your sister-in-law said they sound like kids. <laughs> and then um, the the second one is, uh, but I don't think most of those people that ended up that God delivered out of Egypt ended up being His people. 
when you get to Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews, it encourages us to make sure and to strive as those who are part of the covenant community. We are to strive to enter into God's rest and to not be like the generation that fell in the wilderness where he swore they will not enter into my rest. And so uh, the writer of Hebrew makes a direct parallel between them not entering the Holy Land and us not entering into heaven. And I think it's legitimate to say that, that God did not actually save that generation, but saved their children because of their groaning. I mean, God says, you, he says, because one of the complaints, one of the complaints uh, that, that they have right when the, uh, when the spies come back, it's like, we're going to go into this land and they're going to kill our children. You know, we're going to be wiped out and they're going to kill our children. And God says, no, you're going to die in the wilderness. And your children, who you said they would wipe out, they're the ones that are going in and wiping them out. So I, I think it was an unbelieving generation uh, and is to be an example to us of how not to be the people of, of God. What, uh, which, 135 of which book? Deuteronomy? Uh-huh. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your father. <laughs> Not one. Over the age of 10. <laughs> the kids that were there at, when the slaves came back, they got to go in. I think it's important to realize that the plagues were executed against the gods of Egypt. And he was primarily, God was destroying the religion of Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, Numbers 33 says that you know, God executed the plagues against the gods of Egypt. The second thing is that when we read that, well, the children of Israel, cried, the Lord heard their cry. Mm -hmm. We tend to read into that that they were this very pious generation. Right. Ezekiel tells us quite the opposite, that they were deeply enmeshed in the gods of Egypt. Mm -hmm. So that the plagues were designed not only to show the Egyptians who was God, but to show the Israelites who was God. Mm -hmm. And when you get out in the wilderness... God, God puts them to the test. Have you really believed what you've seen? Mm -hmm. And they and, and the answer is no. They no, haven't. they haven't. So it's a very um, it's a very dangerous thing to be. It's like Hebrews six. Yeah. When you're exposed to the things of God and you turn your back on it, it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, and that's what you see. That's one of the lessons that mm -hmm. you see. You know. Uh, the fact that they were, when I say they were, they were enmeshed in the worship of Egypt, I'm not saying they had no remembrance of their forefathers or some recollection of what had gone on in the past. But the reality of where they were at the moment, they were deeply enmeshed in the, the gods of Egypt. Hmm. And when they get out, they want to go back. That's the golden calf. Right. It's, attempt, it's a syncretistic attempt to bring God together with the gods of Egypt. God will have nothing of it. All right. Good. I would agree with that totally, because we'll talk about that next week, too. And the golden calf, which is really not a calf, it's a bull, it's Apis, it's, it's an Egyptian god, and, and they turn back to this false god because that's where they're going to have their fun and their <laughs> other things and think that he was going to deliver them. 
but again, I think a great commentary on Israel at that time, and probably a great commentary upon me and all of us as we go through our spiritual journey is Psalm 78. Because it says this is a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. They did not keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works. But he performed miracles. He divided the sea. He led them the clouds. But they sinned still more against him. They tested God in their heart and spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the world? I mean, Psalm 78 goes on and on to prove this very point that here were outwardly God's people, but inwardly they were of uncircumcised lips and uncircumcised hearts. Hearts, yeah. This is more an application, but, you know, our culture is, is just awash with the name and claim it. Uh, don't speak negative. You know, if you speak negative, don't don't come around me, kind of thing. I've had inmates reject me because I was, you know, God told them they're getting out of prison next week. I'm saying, wait a minute, you know, and they get really mad. Hmm. If you look at Moses here, there couldn't be the more anti-type of that kind of thinking. This doesn't happen because Moses is thinking positive. This <laughs> happens because God is thinking. It's what God is doing, yeah. not Moses. And then I didn't really cover, you know, it goes right into a genealogy. Uh, and genealogies have so many different purposes in the New Testament. And part of it is to establish that Moses is the rightful leader of Israel. But it's also in this context to establish that Moses is a person, you know, that he's not a Melchizedek figure that comes out of nowhere. He's not the Christ. He's not the one that appears and uh, saves his people, um, in that sense, uh, he is a reg He and Aaron are just regular people, and uh, with a with a history, and with failings, and that God is the hero of the story. I think that's kind of the purpose of the of the genealogy. There, it's to it's uh, all of a part of this section that we were looking at to establish that Moses is human and God is El Shaddai.